God, we are here to worship you this morning. We thank you for being a God that never moves. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And here in your presence, we can rest in that fact. God, you are our rock. You are our refuge. You are our strength. And when our strength fails in our weakness, your strength shines through. And we praise you for that, God. We praise you for your grace. We praise you for your mercy. And I pray that we can rest in your presence here in the midst of life. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Awesome. Thank you, Nick. I'll have Vance. Why don't you come up here, Vance? We've been talking about making Vance a deacon probably for, well, before Creekside even existed, probably. Something along that. Vance uh, was instrumental as Olivet and Cornerstone came together to become, what is it, Jeff? What are we? Creekside. Thank you. Creekstone. As we, to become Creeks, Creekside, now I'm throwing myself off, to become Creekside. Uh, and so we've been talking about making Vance a deacon for a very long time, and just a lot of things kind of holding the timing up of it. But I want to read uh, a portion here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it describes what a deacon looks like. And I think as you think about Vance, I mean, he fits the bill. And so what we want to do this morning is we just want to present uh, Vance to you, and then we're going to take a couple weeks, and if anybody has any thoughts or objections to Vance, you know, that, that would be the time to bring it up. I can't imagine anybody would, surely not. No. Nan, maybe, okay. Um, so, so let me read this, starting in verse 8. It says, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well, well gain in an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. This is what a deacon is to look like, not only him, but his family. And, and seeing Nan only even, even in work this week with VBS, I mean, you realize that this is an entire family. They love God. They serve God. We believe they fit the bill. So think about it. Pray with us about Vance, and I'm going to pray now. God, we thank you uh, for Vance, we thank you for Nan, we thank you for their family and just their service here at Creekside. God, we pray that uh, you would bless them, God, that you would uh, continue to uh, just develop their, their family and their relationship and ultimately that they would serve you and serve this church well. Uh, we just pray it and we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks, Vance. Next thing we want to do is I want to transition over. I want to introduce you to my friend, Tristan. You can come up here. Tristan and I have been friends since, well, probably the second day of college or so, and we used to play Risk often every night probably in our dorm rooms. Didn't get a lot of uh, – we did a little better in the spelling bees than Nick did. But uh, So Tristan and I know each other since our Emmaus days. He is now serving the Lord down in Dallas, Texas, Dallas, and he works with the Corinne group, right? I'm going to let him share that, but we, we believe, you know, it's kind of a natural thing for us here as we have that partnership with the Corinne. Uh, there's, and he can probably explain this a lot more than, than I do, but there are two major places where the Corinne come in the United States. One, number one would be Dallas, Texas. Number two would be Des Moines, Iowa. So we believe there's kind of this natural partnership 
uh, between the Corinne and Creekside and, and with what Tristan's doing uh, down in Dallas. So I'll go ahead and turn it over to you. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning. Uh, I see many familiar faces. We've kind of been uh, in and around for many years uh, previously. I grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and uh, that's where I'm from originally. Met my wife in high school there and then uh, ministered at a church in Cedar Rapids uh, as a youth pastor for a while, also teaching in a, a Christian school there as well, uh, teaching Bible. But uh, as happens with many people, uh, my wife and I felt compelled to, uh, to be involved with people from different cultures and to go and to share the gospel with people who have never heard the gospel, to have the opportunity to do that. And in order to do that, uh, it required us to, uh, to move my family. I have three uh, little children and uh, my wife and I, and we decided to move uh, and we had to move to of foreign land with strange people and customs and a different culture, right? And, uh, and that, that foreign land is Texas. So, um, so, so, so now that's where we are. We are trying to adjust to the culture. We're trying to, you know, make do, but it's an interesting transition. But to, to give you an idea of why we did this, the, uh, that there are millions of people currently right now who have had to flee their countries because of uh, numerous reasons, but a lot of times it's genocide, war, hunger, famine, political reasons. They're fleeing, they're going to refugee camps all over the world. Uh, of, of all of those people that are in refugee camps, the smallest percentage, uh, the very small percentage are, are considered the highest risk, meaning their life is at the highest risk, meaning that uh, something traumatic has happened to them or uh, they're just like, they're, they're going to be killed if they have to return home. So they're eventually resettled into a permanent residence in another country. And uh, of all the countries around the world that are resettling refugees, the United States is probably bringing in around 93, 95% of all of those refugees. Uh, so it's a really big uh, you know, task that we're undergoing and hundreds of thousands each year are being resettled. And so that means that the United States every year is bringing in around 90,000 refugees to come and live in the United States. And currently, the, there are two major cities that are the, the top number one destination for refugees that are being resettled because there are urban areas all around the United States where the government has said, we're going to resettle refugees into these uh, cities. And the two number one cities right now, and they're kind of neck and neck, are Houston and Dallas. And so if you think, you know, if you think about that, then the, the majority of all refugees that are being resettled uh, in the world right now are being resettled in Texas. And so that's kind of why, uh, why we ended up in Texas. So in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex area, there are approximately 250,000 refugees right now living. And uh, I'm coming from the state of Iowa where we don't have 
hardly any cities larger than 250,000. And so, um, you know, we're, we're obviously looking at a large number, and that's just in the Dallas area, and then you count Houston. And this is a reality in many other urban areas. And so what it is, is it creates a reality that didn't exist when I was a child. Uh, my children now are going to school and sitting across from them are individuals who have come to the United States as refugees, uh, people who are here and who have experienced things that I will never experience. And so these individuals who are coming are coming you know, with traumatic experiences in their past. They're coming hurt, they're coming uh, very poor and needy oftentimes, and they're coming with uh, a need to hear the gospel. And many of them are coming having never heard the gospel. The most of the services that are provided for refugees, the vast majority of services that are provided for refugees are provided by the uh, by government funded sources. And so even um, big uh, organizations like Lutheran Family Services, Catholic Charities, these are kind of the big organizations that are doing a lot of work with refugees. Um, they're being government funded. And so that obviously places a restriction on some of the things that they can and can't do with regards to their work. And uh, what it means for us is we're not government funded we, uh, because we've made the decision that we want to be able to openly, freely share the gospel and we want to be able to provide the services as long as we need to and not have the, the government come in and say, no, you're done working with this person, now you need to move on to another individual. And so, uh, so what we do with For the Nation's Refugee Outreach, uh, which is the name of the organization, is we provide uh, multiple different services for refugees who are coming to the United States, but uh, m most of what we do is we do education. We provide uh, classes for people to learn you know, language, to learn computers, to learn job skills, uh, but then we also provide uh, an opportunity to learn the gospel, an opportunity to learn about who God is. We had a little kid um, from Bhutan come up to us this week, uh, and he had this these big, wide eyes, and we had just told him the story of uh, Jesus calming the water. And he came and he looked at us and he said, how can Jesus do that? That's something God does. And, uh, and, then, and then you could kind of see him, and he looked, and, you know, after we talked to him, he said, this is a very different God than what my parents believe in. And, uh, and you know, and he kept coming, and we've, uh, we've established contact with him and his parents and everything. And, uh, and so they're hearing things for the very first time that they've never heard before. And uh, it's an excellent opportunity that we have this last year through our organization, which is a small organization, but growing each and every day. Um, we were able to reach about 2,000 uh, refugees. And this next year, we're looking to increase that to around 3,000 and increase it further. Again, the reason I wanted to share this with you all is because you all know something about this probably, living in Des Moines, as Des Moines is another one of those urban areas where refugees are being resettled on an annual basis. And um, we, we work with all sorts of people groups, and so I'll wake up in the morning oftentimes, and uh, I'll work until about six o'clock at night, and at the end of the day, I've said oftentimes I've worked with about uh, nine different countries and about 15 different people groups within those countries. And, uh, and so it's, it's very uh, 
unique. It's an opportunity to meet a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. And, uh, and the Karen people from Burma are one of the people. We probably work with about 300 to 400 people from uh, Burma. And we have an apartment that we rent in an apartment complex that's 98% Karen refugees. And uh, we have an apartment there that we meet and we uh, have services for them uh, almost every day throughout the year. And so uh, it's, it's a unique opportunity, and it's an opportunity that is uh, ever-increasing in the United States because every year more and more refugees are coming. And uh, I just wanted to share a little bit with you about what we're doing in the Dallas area. And that, that is, um, you know, it, it's something that applies to everyone in this room because it's going to be something that's going to be more of a reality in the Des Moines area and uh, and currently is. And so we eventually, coming from Iowa, may end up having a For the Nations branch in Iowa <laughs> in, the, in the Des Moines area. And um, so if you want to know more about it, then just stop me and my wife afterwards. We have some information we can hand you, and maybe you can sign up and learn more information about what we're doing. But uh, I just appreciate the opportunity to share real quickly about what we're doing and uh, our work with For the Nation's Refugee Outreach. Thanks. Thanks, Tristan. Go ahead and give him a hand. That's awesome. You learn something new every day that God works in uh, Texas also. Um, I mean, he brought Tyler and Megan here, and that's enough said about that. Um, anyway, did you know that we have 200 to 250 Burmese, Korean people that meet here every, every Sunday at 2 o'clock? If you didn't know that, now you know. And um, every time there is the first Sunday of a month, which happens every month, uh, we are going to have in our donation station is a chance for us as Creekside Church to donate things to the Burmese families. Um, and I've sent out a list about that before. I'll sure send out a list again this week, but the first Sunday of every month, that's going to be what our donation station is for. And then every other Sunday, you can keep donating non-perishable foods uh, to the Urbandale Food Pantry. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, Mark, second book in the New Testament. Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to be today. We're going to finish up in chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. I'll read it to you, and then we'll dive in. It says this, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as he heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Here's Jesus' response. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied. But even the dog under the table eats the children's crumbs. He told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went to Sidon, down the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on the man. 
After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus went, put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to seven and with a, heaven and with a deep sigh said, be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this tale of two healings, this story of two people that you touched and you healed. God, we pray that this morning that you would speak to us. God, that that your word would teach us what it is to worship you, to come to you boldly and in confidence. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so chapter 7 here, starting, here's what it says, verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. And so if, if you will look at the map, you're going to see Tyre up in that top left-hand corner. Okay, so this is the vicinity of Tyre. This is the place, this is the city that he's going to, this area. Now, one thing you'll need to, to note during the time of Jesus and as you go through the gospel, that he never really leaves the region of Israel, the Jewish nation. Okay, up until this point, he hasn't left. Other than when he was a child and he was Egypt, this is really the first time he goes out of this region to the Gentile nation. Okay, so at this point, he's gone up to Tyre. Now, a little bit about Tyre. Tyre originally was supposed to be part of the promised land. That God, when he sent the nation of Israel over there, Tyre was a part of the, the, of the promised land. At this point, it is not part of the Jewish nation, is not part of Israel. The people living here, and this is important, the people living in this region are not Jews, they are Gentiles, okay? They are not part of the Jewish nation, and knowing that background and understanding it a little bit helps set the table for this story. Okay, so Tyre, at one point, this great city, okay, if you would go and you'd read in Ezekiel chapter 26, there is a prophecy against the city of Tyre. It says Tyre is going to come to ruin. Well, before this time, Tyre, a great city, okay, and it was, a, it was a, uh, an island off the coast, very difficult, difficult to get to, uh, very well fortified. You know, when Assyria came and they came to this region, they couldn't get to Tyre, well fortified, protected place, a great city, okay, kind of a seaport. This prophecy in Ezekiel 26 comes to pass when Alexander the Great, about 250 B.C., rolls in. Now, Alexander the Great had the same problem. Alexander the Great, I, I know you want a history lesson today. Alexander the Great, he really wanted this, be able to get to this city because he had some sort of dream. We're told he had a dream about the city of Tyre. And it was him worshiping in this temple at the city of Tyre. So Alexander the Great comes, he shows up really at the foot of, of Tyre, says, hey, I want to come in, I want to worship there. They tell him, not going to happen. We are not letting you in our city. So what Alexander the Great did is he built a causeway. So what was once an island is now this great causeway, and they spent months building this causeway so his army could march over there, and that is when Tyre was defeated and essentially destroyed, fulfilling the prophecy we see in Ezekiel chapter 26. And if you look at Tyre, in 322 B.C., this is before Alexander the Great shows up. That's what it looked like. In 1873 A.D., and what it would look like today, Tyre has gone from an island to a peninsula. 
And so this is the region of Tyre, once a great city, right? Once a great city, but now not what it once was. And no longer part of the promised land either, okay? It is now a Gentile nation. So that's important as we kind of set this story. So he goes up to Tyre, and then what we can't see is north of Tyre is Sidon. And he'll go through Sidon all the way to Decapolis over here. And so that's where the the second healing is going to take place. So he's in this region of Tyre. Uh, Verse 24 continues on. It says, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. So Jesus strolls into town, rolls into town, and doesn't want anybody to know that he's there. Now, one thing is important to know about Jesus, he was fully God, and he was fully man. And I don't know about you, but when things are very busy, there's a lot going on, and you can't get away from people, what do you want? You want a break, right? You want to rest. And remembering that Jesus, fully man, man, he needs a break. These stories we're reading through, there are thousands of people following Jesus. People want to be healed by Jesus. They want to listen to his teaching. They want to see him perform a miracle. They want to hear him. Thousands of people following Jesus, night and day. They want to have this conversation and see him at work. And Jesus, he just needs a break. At the same time, as Jesus is performing these miracles, people are now wanting to crown him, right? Some of these people want to make him king. And then there's the other side of this. There's some people that... They want to kill him. And so all this going on, and Jesus, he just wants a rest. He just wants a break from it all. And so he leaves this region. Now understand, at this point, he had never left the region, and it doesn't appear that he does again. And so he leaves the region of Israel here and goes up to this place called Tyre. And it didn't take him long, right? He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. Jesus rolls into town, and even this place, over the border of the nation of Israel, they recognize Jesus. If you would go back to Mark chapter 3 and read in Mark chapter 3, it says, A great crowd from Galilee came down to hear and to see Jesus. So what's taking place is this crowd up in Galilee has heard what took place. And whether this woman was part of this crowd or whether she had just heard about Jesus, Either way, Jesus marches into town, and it doesn't take very long for people to realize he's there, right? So he's looking for this rest. He's looking to get away. You know, there's no Southwest Airlines in that day. Jesus just wanted to get away from it all. So he goes to this house in Tyre. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek Born in Syrian Phoenician, Phoenicia, she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. So Jesus shows up looking for a little rest, and here this Syrian Phoenician, maybe we should have Nick spell that. Can you spell Phoenician? <laughs> that was a joke from last week. All right. Syrian Phoenician woman shows up, and what does she want? She wants Jesus, Jesus, I, I got the, this daughter, she's been possessed by a demon, heal her. Do something. And the same story is in the book of Matthew, and Matthew always gives a little more details of stories. But in this story, we'll see that this woman kept begging, kept asking, Jesus, heal my daughter. Make her well. Heal her. Do something. And in the story in Matthew, we see a point, Jesus basically is just ignoring the woman. Doesn't seem like Jesus, but that's what he's doing. 
She's begging, hey, heal my daughter. Do something. Make, just come out, touch her, do whatever, heal her. And Jesus sits there ignoring her. The disciples at that point, as we see in Matthew, they come up, Jesus, you know what? She, she's begging us. She, she won't leave you alone. Do something. Get rid of her. Right? Everybody at this point, they're just trying to get rid of this Phoenician woman. She's come to Jesus asking for her daughter to be healed. Seems like a reasonable response, right? But she keeps begging and begging, heal my daughter. Make her well. And I love her boldness. I love that she's willing to go to Jesus. Now, one thing we need to understand, her being Syrian Phoenician, a Greek, a Gentile, a pagan, a woman, all these things in that culture, she had going against her. And she would have known the customs here in the nation of Israel, among the Jewish people. She knew the customs. And Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, had all the credentials. She, as a Greek, as a pagan, not a God worshiper, did not know the word of God, the law, did not study the law, had none of the credentials needed to come to this Jewish rabbi. Yet she still does. She didn't measure up, right? In the terms of the world standards, as she saw it, she would not measure up because here is a Jewish rabbi, a God follower, knows the scripture, knows the law. He's got it all together. She, Greek, Phoenician woman, Gentile, pagan, sinner, all of these things did not. Yet still, with great boldness, what does she do? Jesus, heal my daughter. Make her well. Make her well. She continues to beg and plead for Jesus. Now, her boldness probably doesn't surprise us too much, does it? Right? We know that there are people that are cowards, and we know that there are people that are heroes, and then there are parents, right? They're in a whole other spectrum. If something's wrong with our child, is there something, is there anything that we wouldn't do? If there is something that can make my sick child well, is there any length I wouldn't go to? Right? Hopefully. There's nothing I wouldn't do. If one of my kids was sick or was dying or whatever else, I would go to any length possible to help my child out. And that's what this woman is doing. So her boldness here, it doesn't shock us. It doesn't surprise us. She wants her daughter to be healed, and here is the great physician. Here is the healer. Here is this Jewish rabbi she has heard about that can make her sick daughter well. And she goes and pleads with Jesus, heal, heal my daughter. Get rid of this unclean spirit from her. So her boldness does not surprise us, but her response to Jesus is what's so shocking. Her response to Jesus' parable, as we're going to see, is history-changing. Yeah, the boldness, that's great. We see the boldness. We understand it. As many of us are parents ourselves, yeah, no, no length we wouldn't go to. But her response to Jesus is incredible. History-changing, life-changing. Here's what verse 27 says. This is Jesus talking now. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. What? What are you talking about? Anybody like me? And I remember the first time I'm reading this, I'm like, what in the heck is he talking about? And I'm like, ah, it's just Jesus, let's just keep reading. Right? 
Let me read it again. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, Matthew, again, gives us a little more detail of it, but this, isn't, this is another parable of Jesus. See, if you would just read it and then try to understand it, if you can, and you start seeing this, hey, they toss it to their dogs, well, she understands what's going on. She understands that she would be one of those dogs. Okay, now, at first, that's going to seem like an insult. If you read through the Old Testament and you read through the New Testament, anytime you see dog in the Old or New Testament, shockingly, that's not, a, you know, that's not something that people say to compliment you. Oh, you're a dog, right? All right? You think of even David and Goliath. David walks out, he says, what am I, some dog that you would bring this guy to me? Right? Dog, not a compliment. But in the Greek, it says something a little different. The word here is not dog, but it's little dog. It's like a puppy. It's like a pet. Okay, so he's not insulting this woman. If we begin to understand, we see dog. He's not calling her a dog. All right, that's not what he's doing. He's telling a story. He's telling a parable like he's done so many times. Anybody have a dog? I got a dog. This is Gracie. Okay. Oh, yeah. Gracie's a cute dog. She, she has her issues, but she's a good dog. All right. We, we, we love Gracie. We treat her well. Every now and then we'll give her little treats and some other things, all right, because we like Gracie. And in our culture, you know, pets are popular, right? A lot of people have pets. A lot of people have dogs. Well, in this culture, not many people had pets and dogs, but what they did have is when puppies were little, they would keep them and they'd play with them and things like that. So that's what Jesus is telling her, okay? It's kind of like this puppy. Now, let's read the story again. He says, first, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the puppies. So it's, for me, if we're sitting down for dinner, I don't take Cade and Ava's food and toss it to Gracie, Right, that makes sense, that I wouldn't do that. Hopefully we don't do that, right? We, we feed our children first. And this woman, she's a mother. She understands that aspect. Yeah, I'm going to feed the children first, and if there's leftovers, we might toss it to the puppies. Okay, give our pets a little something extra. So this is the story Jesus is telling her. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Okay, that's great. That's a cool story. We feed the, feed the kids first, then the dogs. That makes sense. But what is Jesus really telling this woman? He's telling her, the he, reason I came, if you go back to that map, the reason I came, I came for the Jews first. I came for the nation of Israel first. I came for God's children first. Those are the children, and that is why I'm here and so initially, why he's telling her, go away, go away, go away, go away, don't bother me, it's because he didn't come for her. Now, he's going to send his disciples out, and they're going to go into all the world. They're going to go to the Gentiles, but that isn't why Jesus is here. Jesus came for God's people. The children of God were the Jewish nation. Okay, so this woman listened to her response. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Even the dogs under the, child, or under the table eat the children's crumbs. What's her response? Yeah, I get it. I love this. I get it. I understand what you are saying. 
I understand you came for the Jews first. This woman gets it. She understands the parable. Now, we read last week, we went through the story. Nick shared the story with us. It's not what enters the man that's unclean. It's what comes out of him. And then if you read that story over in Matthew, Peter goes up, oh, explain that to me, Jesus. And Jesus is like, what are you, an idiot? Are you dull? He used the word dull. I use idiot. Okay. Are you, are you dull that you don't understand what I'm telling you? How many times do we read through the Gospels that you see a parable and the, the disciples are clueless? The Jewish disciples don't understand what the rabbi is saying. But here, this Greek, Phoenician, Gentile, pagan woman, she gets it. Yeah, I understand. You came for the Jewish people first. But I also understand, as you said right here, you came for us. Not yet, but you came for us. Right? She replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, the children eat first, but the puppies, they get a little something too, don't they? The puppies get to eat as well. And Jesus, I'm one of those puppies, right? I'm one of them. And I just want a little crumb. I just want a little something. I want a taste of what is to come in the future now. Just give me a taste of it now. Heal my demon-possessed daughter now. I know it's coming. Just give me a taste. Just give me a taste right now. I love it because she understands it. She gets it. She knows what Jesus is saying. And unlike anybody has done at this point, she knows and responds to a parable of Jesus. And, and it comes to the fact that she knows who she is and she knows who she's talking to. She knows she's a Gentile. She's a pagan. She doesn't measure up. But you know this man that she's speaking to? He does. And she's not coming on her own merits. She's not coming because she deserves it, but she's coming on the merits of Jesus. She's coming because she knows that this guy can heal her daughter. Here's Jesus' response. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Some translation says this is a wonderful response. This is an amazing response. This is an unbelievable response. For such a response, your child is healed. Right? She knew who she was and she knew who she was talking to. And she understood this parable. And like nobody had done to this point, Jesus said, all right, your daughter, because of your answer, your daughter is healed. I wish it was that easy, right, to get healed, whether it be a kidney stone or eye surgery or whatever else it might be. It'd be nice to, hey, Jesus, give me a tough question. Let me see if I can answer it. That's not the point, though, is it? So the point is, this woman understood who she was, and she understood she was talking to the great healer. She was talking to the one person who could make her daughter well. She understood that she, as a Gentile and as a pagan and as someone who had a daughter with an unclean spirit, had no place, had no place at the table. But she also understood who Jesus was, his mercy and his grace. And that, and that is what she was clinging to. Not her own merits, 
not herself, but on the merits of Jesus. This woman, she understood the gospel. She understood what Jesus was all about, who he was, and why he came. She understood the gospel. I love the story of this Phoenician woman. James Edwards said this. He says, this pagan woman, this is his commentary on the gospel of Mark. He says, this pagan woman understands Jesus' mission disclosed to her in the parable of the children and their dogs at the table. She fully accepts that Jesus must fulfill God's revelation to Israel, but that the superabundance that fulfillment will produce will spill over and include her and others like her. What an irony this is. Jesus has been seeking desperately to teach his chosen, chosen Jewish male's disciples, yet they have every time been dull and non-comprehending. The fact is, this woman, this pagan woman, is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. She enters the parable and allows herself to be claimed by it. She answers Jesus from within the parable. That is, she accepts the terms by which Jesus addresses her, and yet within the parable, she has met a living Lord with whom she has struggled and contended. She is, in fact, a female Jacob who has said, I will not let you go until you bless me. A female Jacob who says, I won't let you go. I'm going to cling to it. I'm going to beg. I'm going to ask and ask and ask until you give me what I want. Isn't that amazing boldness that she goes to Jesus and no merits, no, nothing deserving that she could do this, yet she begs and she pleads and she begs and she pleads until Jesus says, all right, I give in. What boldness that she has. What a great truth for us that we can boldly go to Jesus. Tim Keller says this, Tim Keller says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the gospel. This is what this woman understands. This is the reason she can come with boldness to him. Not on her own merits, right? Because she is sinful and she is flawed. But who's she going to? At the very same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The reason we can boldly go is because we are accepted. The reason we can go is because we have hope. The reason we can go is not because of our own merits, but the merits of Jesus. We're going to continue on reading. Here's the second story. And I, I, see, I think from the first we can see a lot of the reasons that we can have boldness, that we can be bold in going to Jesus. In the second story, I'm going to read it rather quickly, we see why we can have this boldness. It says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went to, through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought him to a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, he said, be opened. At this, the man's ears were open, his tongue loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Okay, so he just heals this woman because he says, hey, go, your daughter's fine. Now, what in the heck is going on here? Yeah, sometimes you read this and you're like, is, is this kind of 
Jesus, hey, Peter, watch this one, right? But boom, healed, right? It's almost like he's some, he's some great magician conjuring up magic. That's not Jesus doing, though, is it? Right? He's not doing it some big spectacle to make this man well. Jesus is identifying with this man. He's identifying with him. And I love his compassion for him. See, anytime Jesus encounters somebody, it's always different. So many times we try to put Jesus in this box and try to make Jesus as we want him. But he's always different in how we interact and we encounter him. You can go to the story in John chapter 11. Mary and Martha. Lazarus is dead. They're both upset. Jesus four days late. Marches out. Martha comes out to meet him. Jesus, if you'd shown up, my brother would be healed. And Jesus basically rebukes her. And they have a great conversation through it. And then he goes into the house, and Mary had not come out. He goes into the house. Mary comes. She throws himself down on the ground, said, Jesus, if you'd only been here, my brother would be healed. He'd be living. And Jesus weeps with her. Same question to Jesus, but he responds differently. See, we, we try to put Jesus in this box. We try to make Jesus as we see him, but he's different. He gives us what we need. And for Martha, here's what she needed. For Mary, here's what she needed. For this woman, this Greek Phoenician, his response was, go away, go away, go away. He gave her what she needed. For this man, I mean, he has compassion, he has love, and he gives him what he needs. He identifies with him. So he goes and he does this thing, and, and as you see him going through these motions, remember this guy is deaf and he's mute, right? So Jesus pulls him off to the side, not to make some big spectacle, and he touches his ears, and he touches his tongue. He sighs and says, be open. What's he doing? I mean, it's basically what he's doing is it's sign language, right? Ears, he can't hear. Tongue, he can't speak. Giving thanks to God. He's identifying with the man. He's giving this man what he needs in this moment. This is our God. This is our Jesus. He gives us what we need in the moment. It's not always what we think we need. Sometimes we need him to weep, right? Sometimes we need to be rebuked. Sometimes as he's identifying with this man, he takes him away and he gives him what he needs in that moment. He does one other thing, and this is what I want to leave you with. In uh, verse 34, he says, He looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, with a deep sigh, he says, be open, be open. I think uh, what Mark wants us to realize, what Mark wants us to see here, is there's a word, it's a Greek word that for, uh, for deaf mute. It's mogulilon. Mogulilon is this deaf word for, for or this Greek word for deaf mute. It is found only one other time in Scripture. Okay, it's found here in Mark chapter 7, and it's also found in Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, it says this, With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Why is Jesus sighing? Because he identifies in this moment with this man. He identifies with this prophecy. Why does Mark share it? Because the Messiah has come. Mark wants us to point that the Messiah is Jesus. He has come so the deaf can hear, 
and the mute can speak. I think he also wants to point out one other thing in there. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Well, we know Jesus didn't come, right? He, he didn't come to take power. He came to give it. Jesus did not come, and here's the key, he did not come to give, to bring divine retribution, but he came to bear it. And in this moment, he's identifying with this man. In this moment, he's identifying with the fact that he is the Messiah and he has come to bear divine retribution. What does that mean? That the reason he can heal, he can make that, that woman's daughter with a demon well, that he can make this man hear and speak, is because he's going to the cross. Because in the cross, we identify with him. And the reason this woman can have so much boldness as to come to Jesus is this. Because we identify. He has come to bear this divine retribution. Hebrews 4.16, last verse, Nick, you guys can come back up here. It says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That that Phoenician woman find mercy and grace in her time of need? Yes. Did she go boldly to Jesus? Yes. Why can we go boldly? Because Jesus bore that divine retribution. Because Jesus took our sin and our shame and our wrongdoing and our, all of these things upon himself. Because Jesus, the ultimate child of God, became a dog. So us dogs could become children of God. Isn't that an awesome truth? So amazing. The ultimate child of God becomes a dog, so us dogs can become children of God. This is the gospel. This Phoenician woman understood it. And my hope and my prayer is you understand it. My hope and my prayer is that we, like this Phoenician woman, can go boldly with confidence to the throne of grace. Boldly approach so we may find grace and mercy in our time of need. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story of this Phoenician woman who came boldly to you. God, may we, may we, because of this great thing you have done for us, come boldly to you. And now we, as we continue to worship you, we remember you in the bread and the juice. God, help us to examine our lives. Help us to dwell on you and the greatness of who you are. Help us to realize that you know, we are unworthy. God, we are like dogs. And yet in spite of that, your son, this great child of God, has given his life up. So we dogs could be children of the great high God. What an awesome truth. God, help us not to take this lightly. We pray these things and ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.